Have you ever had things break in production and you're not quite sure what went wrong? I remember the good old days when you had to go use things like tail and grep and then randomly click around the app to try and figure out what broke. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore, thank heaven. All you have to do is go sign up for Airbrake and then install it in your app. Airbrake is really simple. You get a little code that you put into your config file and then you just install the gem. That's it. Really simple to set up. Then what it does is it aggregates all of the exceptions and errors that are thrown by your application so that you don't have to keep track of that anymore. It collects other information from the system as the errors occur, so parameters and things like that, depending on where the error occurs. And one thing that drove me crazy when we first started getting apps like Airbrake doing this work is that you would get 10,000 of the same error, and that doesn't happen anymore. Now they just aggregate it all together. You can go look at the individual errors and see where and what actually happened, but when it comes right down to it, they just let you know, hey, this error occurred 10,000 times, and then you go look at the individual ones so you can get them fixed. It's really easy to install. I already said that, but I just can't stress that enough. <laughs> you take two seconds, you get it installed, and then you're off to the races. When I'm running a business, that time that it saves me is huge. So go check them out at airbreak.io slash rubyrogues, and that'll let them know that we sent you. But seriously, just make your life easier. If you go check it out at airbreak.io slash rubyrogues, you'll get Airbreak free for 30 days, plus get 50% off the first three months on the startup plan. So go check them out. You can thank me later. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, yeah, it's just the two of us today, Dave. Yeah, no. I, you know, this is maybe like the third or fourth show that we've done where it's just been you and I uh, in the past year, I think. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But there's always something to talk about, so. There is, there is. Even when, you know, we get on the show and we're like, man, crap, what are we going to talk about? We always find something to usually end up going over the allotted time. Yeah. You know, we just get in there and start talking. Yep, almost always. And uh, yeah, so this week, I think I picked the topic. And um, this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. Um, I'm also giving a talk on this uh, more Angular focused than Ruby focused. Um, in about three days, uh, I'm going to Denver. I'm going to be speaking at the Angular meetup out there. And um, anyway, um, it's it's basically automation. And I kind of want to set the stage a little bit for this because I've been talking to a lot of companies that uh, basically are having trouble hiring senior developers. They're just like, look, we can't find any senior developers. Uh, most of them are happy in their jobs. They're not going to move, um, you know, and then occasionally somebody will, you know, open up and we just, you know, we can't compete with the salary that they're being offered or we just can't find the, you know, they, they just can't find those people anyway. And then, they, you know, when they open up a position, they get, you know, junior developers that have, they, they get hundreds of them <laughs> applying to this job and they have to weed them out. And I was thinking, well, there are a couple of things you can do because they need to get more work done, right? There are a couple of things that they could do to just be more efficient. And this is something that I've been going through with my business. Um, so I hired a business coach in January and he has this program you go through. So uh, the first thing that you do is you work through this program where you uh, create your mission and vision for your business. And then you go through and you list out all the things that you could delegate. And once you have all that stuff listed out, then you start building procedures on how to do that stuff. 
And I've been finding in my business with the people who are doing work for me that the better I have that stuff automated and the better I have that stuff specified as to how it's supposed to get done, the more efficient we are. And so it, it occurred to me that we're programmers and we're constantly building systems that solve these problems in an automatable way. So why can't we automate some of our code processes? And there are things that we do as programmers that, that solve some of these problems. But I think in a lot of cases, we don't do some of these things because we don't immediately see the payoff. And so I've just been thinking a lot about, okay, what can we automate? Like, what can we automate? What can we delegate? What can we eliminate so that the people who are doing work are doing work that, you know, we can't write a program to do. So anyway, that's kind of what I've been thinking the last little while. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's strange because I think that we are in a uh, shift in how things are going. So before, when I was growing up, you would go out and you would apply for a job and then you would interview with different employers. With yep. the way that the technology sector is going right now is you're going to have more jobs applying to you. You know, especially if you're at that senior level, you know, because like you said, a lot of people like I've been at my at Sage for almost 10 years now. So, you know, I've been doing development there for, you know, as long as I can rem remember almost. But we're finding where if someone wants to hire me, they're going to have to uh, basically apply to me instead of me and applying at a job. You still have to go through all the you know, uh, nuances of interviewing and stuff, just to make sure that you're a right fit for the team. But I think once you get past that junior level, you know, you're going to, there's a lot more opportunities. And why do you think that uh, people are having a hard time filling senior positions? You know, if they're not paying what the market's worth, then, you know, I think that there's a problem there. But well, I think, I think there's, there are a lot of things that go into this. One is is the just retention, right? Um, mm -hmm. If if you can hold on to your senior talent, then you can, you know, then you don't need to hire as often. And I think a lot of companies do a terrible job at retention. And some of that comes yeah. down to the fact that, you know, I can go park in a different parking lot and I can get a $20,000 raise, right? And so why would I stick around this place if I can get such a huge raise? And so I think companies need to be more aggressive about evaluating the people that they have and giving people incentives to stay when they want to keep them. And then the other part of it is that there's more and more work to be done. I mean, more and more business sectors are adopting different levels of software. And so there are just more jobs out there and we're not training up new people fast enough to fill all those spots. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that there's a lot of different reasons why, um, you know, people are staying at a job or leaving a job. You know, for me, it's not even about uh, the sense of purpose, being mm -hmm. able to create something and be like, oh, look, I'm saving the world with this line of code. You know, to me, it's more about coding. I love programming. Yep. I love doing it. And if you can keep my schedule clear to where I can just focus on the code, then I'm going to be a lot happier than being stuck in, you know, five hour long scrum meetings or backlog plannings or whatever, you know? So I think that 
a lot of the red tape that a company introduce introduces into a developer's life cycle is also hurting in them. I agree. I think different people have different, you know, they get the jobs that they get for different reasons. So yeah. I, I would say that, you know, for some people that's, that's definitely true for other people. It may not be, you know, some people that I know, I keep saying, you know, and I'm, it's driving myself, I'm driving myself crazy, but <laughs> a, a lot of people, they get into that position where it really is about that number. It is about the salary mm-hmm. number, or it is about the the number of hours they work, or they have some hobby that they want to get home to, and the job interferes with them having the free time to do it. Or I see people's priorities change when they have kids or when they get married, they want to spend time with their spouse. And so there are a lot of different things that go into this as far as what the business requires of them and what they actually get out of it. Yeah, but, you know, each one of those points, that falls back onto the company. Yeah, absolutely. The the company's not paying you enough or the company is not adopting agile methodologies or scrum methodologies, whatever the buzzword is today, to say, here is the work that we have to do. Let's break it up into groups and then let's plan it out. How much can we accomplish over the next three weeks and, you know, see like, oh, well, to end completion on this project, it's going to take us four months, not the 30 days we were originally thinking. And then they're going to have to adjust their overall direction based on that or hire more people. But even then that has the ramp up period of becoming familiar with the domain. Yep, absolutely. So this is where I come in with the automation stuff. And you're talking about agile processes and things like that. And to me, it's all the same thing. All of it is. Mm -hmm. And as I've talked to a number of DevOps practitioners, when they talk about DevOps, they're talking about all of this stuff. So traditionally, when I talk to people about DevOps who are traditional programmer type people, like, like I am and have been for a long time, when I say DevOps, they're thinking basically server infrastructure. And instead, DevOps is the operational process of writing software. And so it's the people, it's the processes, it's the tools. It's all these things that kind of go together to make it work. And there's more to it than just having scripts that deploy your apps. So I, I kind of want to dive into some of that because you're talking about agile development processes. And that's one of the one of the places to start is making sure that everybody knows what the process is for picking up the next thing or getting work done or things like that. So we're talking about not just and, and I ran into this problem. I had a, a contract with a company in uh, Nashville a few years ago when I was contracting and they would sit down and we'd do our planning meetings. And after we were done, all that stuff would wind up in the backlog. And anytime somebody picked up something from the backlog, almost inevitably, and in my case, every time somebody would come and say, oh, I was already working on that. And the problem was, was that I was there, I was a pair of capable hands, but I couldn't get any work done because every time I tried to work on something, somebody would take it away from me and I would have to go work on it, find something else. And then somebody would take that away from me. So making sure that everybody understands, look, this is the process. This is how we assign out these jobs. This is how we bring people up to speed and having 
a written process for all of these things will really help. And I'm not saying that you have to be super rigid about this stuff. Uh, I don't I don't think Agile really mandates that. But if everybody knows the process for getting work done, this is how we deliver code. This is how we write code. These are the guidelines we have. This is our style guide. This is how people decide what they're going to work on next. Here's how we assign out work. Here's how we estimate. And just making sure that everybody understands and is on the same page as far as what everything means and how we move through it it eliminates a lot of the extra time that we spend in our meetings or trying to figure out how to get things into production or things like that. I expected some pushback on that uh, idea of a written process, or maybe you were just muted and you were yelling at me, no, no, no. So I was muted, but I, I really don't have any, <laughs> but I really don't have any pushback because you have to have structure. You know, as wild and crazy as we are, you have to have structure and you have to have a consensus or a agreement amongst the parties involved or developers that this is how we do it. This mm -hmm. is, you know, how we're going to get our work done. Because I would, you know, as much as I hate meetings, I think meetings are boring and a lot of times um, unapplicable to me when they are applicable with something like a backlog planning, you are basically laying out for the next two weeks or for the next three weeks, here is what we're going to do. Here's our game plan. And here is how we're going to divvy it out and work on things. Yep. And we don't always keep to it 100%. We shift our focus on things based on whatever kind of criticals are coming in or whatever problems that we may uh, discover along the way. And sometimes we will underestimate or overestimate. And that's all okay. Because you have this generalized plan of what you're going to do, how, how long it's going to take you. And if you just have this free-for-all bucket where you just pick a story out of a hat, then you put the story back in there and just keep a mental note, that's what you're going to work on, then you are going to run into conflict and double work, merge conflicts and a bunch of other stuff. So whenever I'm planning our backlog, I try to align the stories that someone's going to work on where they are kind of focusing one area of the application. So all the work that they're doing, they may have... Uh, a file or two that they are going to be touching based on different stories. But then all the stuff that I'm working on is in a different section of the program. So the chances of merge conflicts with one another is very low. Mm -hmm. And if I merge conflict myself on another story that I was working on, I will have a much better understanding of what the result should be. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also interesting as well when you're talking about planning out the sprint, you know, your two or three weeks. It's, how do I put it? Essentially, if you have a process for that too, and it doesn't have to be like this, this is exactly how we do it. But if you can sit down and say, we look at our velocity and then we decide how many tickets we can, or tickets or stories or whatever you want to call them, we're going to put into the sprint and you have defined, you know what, velocity is a guideline for how much work we typically get done instead of velocity is this number that management can beat us up over because it's not high enough, then yeah. you can start to really use these measures to become extremely efficient. 
And as soon as you hit that velocity plus some, you know, wiggle room of percentage that you might get done past that, you're done. You're done planning. And it just sets that boundary so that your meeting doesn't have to be any longer than it has to be. And that everybody knows what the agenda is for that meeting. And everybody knows what the approach is. These are the things that are most important, or these are the things that are going to have the highest payoff for future maintainability, or whatever it is that your team values, you can really focus on those things. Yeah. And, you know, I really hate the idea of sprints anyways. Um, Yeah. You know, because I guess the idea of a sprint is to say, here is this physical period of time that we are going to accomplish these things in. Yeah. That's why I like sprints. You're going to deploy. Yeah. Yeah. But the amount of work, you could just have a backlog with a order of priority or what you guys are going to do. Uh And then just start chipping away one at a time at the top, you know, you have uh, X amount of hours allocated in the day to do coding. If you work an eight-hour day, maybe you work six hours on coding, seven hours, and then you have an hour throughout the day to answer emails, have mm-hmm. whatever kind of meeting or whatever. But you know, seven hours a day, five days a week, 35 hours a week total, you know, that's basically how much time you have towards coding. And then spread that out over three months or whatever, have a three-month backlog, and then just start chipping away at it. Deploy uh, deploy often as things are getting created, accepted, and you know, release it. Get customer feedback, and then throw in revisions back into the backlog as you get feedback. So being tied down to a fixed time frame, I think all that does is give management the ability to report on your performance where, you know, whereas they can still do that, but it's just not in a given period of time. Yeah, I, you, I, I, I kind of disagree with you on the point of sprints. The way that I look at them, you, you had me, you know, I'm like, yeah, sprints, you know, where it's, we're going to get this certain amount of work done in this set amount of time. And for me, it, it allows me to set some level of success criteria, right? It's, hey, look, we're going to get this amount of work done by this date. Now, when you said, and then you deploy at the end, I was like, uh-uh, no. <laughs> that, 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 that's where you lost me, right? If you're doing your sprints that way, I don't want any part of it. Because essentially then you're just working for deliverables that you can deliver within a week or two weeks or three weeks. And some features, some processes that you're going to encode into your application are going to take longer than that. And yeah. if you put all of that into one story, then it makes it really hard to count the progress there. And so if you break things down into smaller pieces, and then, like you said, deploy often, then what happens is, is then your sprint planning essentially becomes, like I said, I really love the idea of velocity, but velocity is just a benchmark of how much work we think we can get done. It's a planning tool only. It's not a measure of performance. It's it's not a measure of anything else. All it is, is it's like, here's the water line. Here's where we think the high water mark is. And so we're going to, we're going to wind up somewhere around where the water line is and we might get a little bit more. And so we're going to plan just a little bit more than where that water line is because we don't want people to slack off at the end saying we got everything done. We want, we want to continue to move forward. We want to move forward in a meaningful way. 
and we want to continue to track that. But then what happens is when you go and you talk to the management and the management says, we, we need all of these things done in three months, you can look at it. You can say, okay, well, we're going to have to you know break this down and then compare it to our current pace of work to make sure that we can do it. Then you can give them accurate feedback. Look, this just isn't going to happen. Or yeah. it, maybe they give some incentives for people to work a few extra hours for a few weeks or something. You know, but you can you can start to figure some of that other stuff out. But you just look at them and say, look, this is the pace we work at. This is how long we think it's going to take to get all these things done. And it's just not going to happen in three months. Or maybe you'll look at them and say, well, actually, we think we can get it done in two. And and so you have that tool that allows you to estimate work. And no, it's not perfect, but you you have something to work from. And then, you know, you mentioned the uh, deploying often and a lot of those other things. And that's kind of the rest of the automation story that I am talking about is you have two levels of that. You have the stuff that happens on your machine, like uh, typically most languages for people who are into testing, they have some kind of test runner, right? So, you know, people run they have Foreman or something that runs their tests or, you know, and then you use Copybara to do your integration tests and maybe uh, Cypress.io or something to do your end-to-end tests or you pull things in like that and you can run all of that locally and then you use continuous integration, continuous deployment. And then on the other end of things, you have a process for when things go wrong. So if there's a bug, what do we check first? How do we gather information? Um, how do we determine who's going to fix it? And then how do we do a postmortem to make sure it doesn't happen again? And so that's kind of the full arc of what I'm looking at. And so if there's a build process that has to happen, which is pretty common now with front-end frameworks, um, you have Webpack and things like that that are going to do a sort of build if you're working in TypeScript or CoffeeScript or uh, ES6 or anything like that. Um, so there's going to be a build process there. Maybe you build your entire app into Docker, um, you know, things like that. You just pull it all together and you make it as, as automatic as possible so that when it happens, it happens consistently. When you need to spin up more servers, those go up and they, they that all happens consistently. They get added to load balancers consistently. And that way things happen in a predictable way and nobody has to think about it. Because when somebody has to think about it, that's where your inefficiencies happen, and that's where a lot of the major problems occur. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to backtrack a bit and you know put in my counter argument for sprints. Mm-hmm. So we use sprints in our work, and you know I do think that they have value, especially when you have a larger team of people. But let's say you have month long sprints. Starts at the first of the month, goes to the end of the month just for easy numbers. So I hate happened, that idea. I think that's too long, but keep going. It is. It is. Uh, but just for sake of argument, uh-huh. argument, let's say you plan out things and you're never going to be exactly spot on with the estimation of time it's going to take. Right. Sometimes it's going to take you a little bit longer. Sometimes it's going to you know, take you not as long. But what happens when now you're three days until the end of sprint and you finished everything. So you finished all your work. Now you have three extra days. Do you go back and build just some extra tests to increase your code coverage? Or do you take a couple of days off? Or, you know, what do you do? Or do you start working on the next story in the backlog? You know, talk to your 
product manager or product owner or scrum master or whomever and say, hey, I'm done with all my work. What should I work on now? And then they'll give you another story in the backlog or whatever. And then what happens when on the flip side where you underestimated your stories and now you're not going to finish everything because you need an extra three days to get it done. So do you roll those stories over into the next sprint? Or do you, you know, work several extra hours throughout the weeks to get that, those stories done on time? Yeah, and see, for me, a lot of that is determined by the team. And as long as the team has a process for handling that stuff, hey, we, we had not enough, you know, we, we didn't have enough work to fill the sprint, you know, so now everybody knows what they're supposed to do. So that could be going to the project manager and saying, okay, what else do we need done? It could be, hey, look, we're going to go do a bunch of code cleanup. Um, you know, it could, anyway, it, I, I think that really comes down to the team. And again, if you, if you don't get all of the work done that was assigned to the sprint, that's just part of the planning process. And really what that usually comes down to is that things didn't get estimated quite right one way or the other. And so you can also then have a retrospective, which you should be doing at the end of each sprint mm -hmm. and saying, oh, look, you know what? We had a two week sprint and we, we got done five days early. So, you know, we basically um, overestimated by half. So, you know, how do we how do we adjust that? Is there something that we else that we need to consider when we're planning these things out? And as you, again, as you go through this process and you iterate over the process and you talk about how you do things, then you can come back and you can say, okay, so next time we're going to take into account uh, the fact that some of this stuff was really easy to, to build and we just hadn't done it before. Or, you know, try and figure out why things happened and then what you can do to mitigate those issues. You know, why didn't we get everything done? Oh, well, it turned out that integrating this library was a, a, a big deal. And nobody knew that. So next time we're looking at integrating a new library, maybe we'll give it a little bit extra buffer. Or maybe we'll decide, hey, look, this was just a one-off thing and it's probably not going to happen again. So we can we can, uh, we can can attack some of these things. Or maybe th this area of code, it turns out, is coupled to a lot of other areas of code that we weren't aware of. And so then as we estimate, we get better at that. But then we can also account for that in future sprints. And... That's where I think that the idea sprints can be more of a uh, a loose time frame to where to say, hey, at this point in our backlog, you know, these top 10 stories down to this one, we would like to deploy these in the next three weeks. So mm -hmm. you guys estimate them out. You work on them. Once you hit that point and stuff, if everything's ready, then you schedule a time to deploy or, you know, you push it up to your master branch and the CICD happens. That's kind of what I mean by deploy often, deploy as things are ready is you still have the idea of sprints or these timeframes, but it's not so coupled to where if you finish early, then you are um, sitting around with nothing to do or now you have to have a meeting with someone to figure out what you should do. You just continue on to the next item in the backlog. Yeah, that's fair. And I think I think in a lot of cases, this again, just goes back to knowing your process, right? If you yeah. want to run things that way, where it's, hey, we need these three stories done to get this deployed. And then we need these five other stories to get this other thing deployed. And so you work on these things, you work on those things, I'm going to work on these other couple of things. And when we 
reach a completion point for one or the other, then we'll do the deployment and then we'll pick up the next set of things. If that's your team's process, that's great. As long as you know that that's the process, right? As long as you know, this is how we do things and this is how we plan things. And there are no surprises around, oh, well, how do I do this or that? Or, you know, I finished my stories. Now what am I doing? Um, You know, you don't want to spin those wheels for too long. You want people to know where to jump in next. And I think I think that's way more important than whether or not you're doing traditional sprints or whether you're doing something more like what you described. Yeah. So we follow the traditional sprints and stuff. And I just find it annoying sometimes when, you know, uh, there's not enough work to do, even though we have a massive backlog of things to do. And they say, no, no, don't work on anything else. Just work on something else. Till it's time. It's like, but I want to code. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm with you on that. I like to code. And I'm sorry, but writing a bunch of integration tests is not coding. That's just busy work. Yeah, but at the same time, there are, and and I encourage teams to do this too and set up a process around this. If you see a section of code that could use a refactor or you see a section of code that tends to break off and that doesn't have good testing around it, put tickets in for that. And that way, when you have those openings, like you're talking about in these sprints, then people know, okay, well, if there's not a clear thing to work on next, I'm going to work on one of the maintenance tickets and then and reach out to the project managers, you know, somebody so that I know what the thing to do after this is. But again, yeah. having having that process, I mean, then people aren't sitting there going, well, I don't really want to write integration tests. So I'm going to just kind of do it, but I'm kind of going to kind of go watch YouTube at the same time. <laughs> and And I know people who do this and I'm not I'm not condemning anybody for it but if you're trying to get the most out of your team and you want to make sure that everybody's on board as far as getting everything done that needs to get done it just makes a ton of sense to be able to go to things and say hey look this is our process so when you finish and there's not a clear next step here's what you do and as you start to solve these things and make sure that everybody understands what the processes are then you really start to be able to move forward in a meaningful way and things get better. Yep. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, having those tech health or maintenance items, I think that those really do warrant their own kind of separate backlog. It's not something that needs to be passed on to a QA department. It's something for the developer's own sanity to make sure that the code is good and covered. And it should be something where you are able to just work on those if you do finish all the items in your sprint, they pass QA, whatever, and you really do have an extra day or two uh, free to then just start picking up those tech health stories. Yep, absolutely. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, 
and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code RubyRogues2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is RubyRogues2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. So I'm curious, what is your process once you're getting around or, or after you've written the code and you check in? Do you use continuous integration? Do you do continuous deployment? Are there are there other things that you have set up after the fact that kind of get you where you're going? Or is most of that done manually? So we don't do anything manually. Uh, everything is some form of continuous integration or continuous deployment. However, I'd say we don't do anything manually. We manually trigger off the continuous deployments. So we will say that um, deploy to our QA environment, deploy to our pre-production environment uh, as we need to. And then we would schedule out a time to deploy to production. We don't automatically right. And uh, developers will have access to the QA environment, to the pre-prod, uh, not the actual servers, but the ability to push to new code to those servers. Right. And uh, we'll do that maybe 10 times a day. You know, deploy to our QA environment just because you know we finished a feature or a bug fix or whatever, and we want to have it tested. And we have our own QA department, which will work with our team. They're on our team, and they will check to make sure that the feature is complete or the bug is fixed. And then we merge that back into our uh, our main branch, not our master branch, but we have a ongoing development branch that we'll then create a release branch off of, which then gets merged back into master. But then once we are finished with our sprint and we are ready to deploy, we'll get with our, we call them our DevOps team or uh -huh. the um, LSM team, uh, live service management or some, so, something like that, our IT peoples. And <laughs> IT peoples. <laughs> you peoples. And we'll schedule a time to deploy. And the reason why we don't do a continuous deployment is because of some of the policies that we have around the company. And that goes to customer readiness. Uh, uh -huh. Is there something going on on the operation side where maybe it's a holiday coming up and they're anticipating heavier traffic and the risk is too high to deploy around the holiday. So, you know, that's why the developers don't just freely deploy. And then we also have uh, guides. You know, we're developers. Our English sucks. So we do not uh, write the documents that goes out to end-user customers. So we have a team that does that for us and they will write up the guides, but we need to work with them to let them know, hey, here's what's new. Here's our bug fixes. Here's what's coming up in the next release. And then they will prepare the documents. We don't ever really see the end result of it, but they work with the QA people to make sure it's all correct. But they have a time frame when they can get that done by. So we don't ever have to worry about that as developers. We just worry about, hey, Here's when we would like to deploy and then the other parties are notified and they kind of work it all out and we just deploy whenever we say we're going to. Right. And then you just provide support as it goes out. Yep. And then yeah, we have a 
QA person uh, and a developer readily available when the deployment's happening just in case something goes wrong. Right. Yeah, I've worked on or I've worked at a couple of companies that the development team was essentially the ops team. I mean, we were it. <laughs> if it, if it touched technology, that was us. And then I've worked at other companies where the setup was more like what you're talking about, where yeah. there was a coordinated effort to make sure everything got tested and then deployed. And again, you know, having that process well understood makes a lot of sense. Um, for the for the companies that I've worked at where we were kind of the whole thing, um, making sure that your deployment process is clean and seamless and consistent and works every time and is somewhat automatic. I mean, you know, you can make it so that, you know, whenever you create a new tag that starts with prod, it goes out or, you know, things like mm -hmm. that. So it can be somewhat deliberate, right? Yeah. But at the same time, just making sure that, okay, it goes, it goes out the same way every time. Everything gets built the same way every time. Everything works the same way every time. And then just knowing that process, right? Here's how my code goes to production is something that I think pretty much every developer at least needs to understand on a fundamental level so that yeah. when it goes out, if there's any problem, it's not, Oh, well, what did you do to get it there? It's okay. Well, I understand the process and I understand how my code works. So let's look at where the problem might be. Yeah. And having the developer also be the deployment manager who, you know, whoever deploys out the production code and has access to the production environment that's a recipe for disaster because what's going to happen when maybe on the deployment side, you really screwed something up. You just wiped out the entire table. There is a 10% chance that you're going to be able to get it back, but you have to be an expert in that domain in order to, you know, the application in order to get the data back or to rework it. Well, the person who made the mistake is your highest tier expert in this area, well, you're going to fire him because he just costs or she just costs the company a lot of money. Well, now you just got rid of your developer who knows the domain better than anyone else. So it's a, a huge risk that you're taking by making your developers the deployment people as well. Or yeah, people who have production access. It's just not a good thing. I think, again, that comes down to the what what do we do when we hit the, oh, crap, something went wrong? And yeah. I feel like in a lot of these cases, approaching it from the, okay, somebody dropped the table when they did the deployment, and so we're going to fire somebody, I don't think that's a healthy way to go. And, you know, we talked about retention earlier. If somebody, mm -hmm. if somebody has to get fired every time there's a mistake, you're going to run out of people really, really fast. <laughs> so you know, personally, when I look at this process, again, it's okay, we're, go we're going to solve the problem. Our primary focus is to gather information and solve the problem. And then we go and we do a postmortem. How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? So if somebody does a migration that drops a table or drops a bunch of information out of the table that we needed, then hopefully that happens pretty early on in the project or the company's history. And then you have that process in place. You go through the postmortem and you say, maybe we should back up our database so that if this happens again, we're not <laughs> up a creek, right? Yeah. And so, again, it, it just comes back to just making this automatic, whether it's scripting your deployments or whether it's 
making it so that people can just look at the process and go, oh, this is what we're doing first. And so instead of making it so that everybody panics and everybody's blaming everybody else, it's okay. The first thing we do is we go gather information. What happened? The second thing we do is we formulate a solution. Then we implement the solution. Then we, you know, then we figure out, you know, what, you know, how this happened. And then we figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen again. And if, if the way we make sure it doesn't happen again is to fire Joe, then we fire Joe. But a lot of times there are other systems you can put in place to make sure that doesn't happen anymore, or you can train your people better or things like that. There are a lot of, there are a lot, there's a lot of leeway there. And just by taking those steps and being aware of how it, how that happens and understanding sort of the values of the, the team, which I haven't even talked about much at all in this context, but is kind of core to this idea, then we can really attack a lot of this stuff without coming at it from, okay, you know what, this, it was his fault. So he's fired. And if you're in a bigger company, having those extra people who can be your SQL experts and your ops experts and things like that is I mean, a lot of times they can afford to hire those people and they have enough work to keep them busy for most of the time. But on in really small teams, really small companies, a lot of times you just don't have that option. And so your your best person is a person who's going to not make the best decision 100% of the time. And you yeah. just have to be able to deal with that and realize that hopefully if they're out of their depth, they'll recognize that and then take steps to figure out what the right thing to do is. Yeah. So do you know what the difference between a junior and a senior developer is? The senior developer has made those devastating mistakes. They learned from it and the company now has them, you know, they've kept them. Yep. You know, opposed to the junior who screws up one time, company fires them, then they go to another company. Well, now it's a whole different set of policies, procedures, processes. They screw up again, get fired, whatever. So... Just because someone has screwed up doesn't mean that they're terminated. It's that's that is the person that you want to keep because they will never make that mistake again. Yeah, hopefully. I've heard an anecdote and I don't remember exactly where it's from. I'm sure I could find it because I read it in a book somewhere. But there was a VP of something or other that really screwed things up, cost the company a couple million dollars. And so he's he they you know they straighten it all out and he. He, he walks into his uh, boss's office and sits down with his boss and his boss uh, and he, he basically looks at his boss and he says, OK, well, you know, do you want me to resign or do you want to fire me? And the boss looks at him and said, why would I fire you? I just spent three million dollars teaching you a valuable lesson. <laughs> and that I mean, that that's the kind of mindset that that really makes the difference. Right now, if somebody's yeah. just reckless and irresponsible, yeah, let them go. But if they're out there trying to do the right thing and it's a judgment call that they made that was wrong, then they just learned a valuable lesson. And you want that person that's not going to drop the database again. Right. As opposed to somebody yeah. else that you have no idea on. So. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot that kind of circles around this. But if you have that process in place, you know, okay, this is how we handle things when things go wrong. Then you can really approach it from that standpoint. And again, you know, it's not about casting blame. It's just about making sure the problem doesn't happen again. Yeah, and, you know, all of this brings me to this article that I read today. And it was a really sad article. Like I felt really bad for the guy up to a certain point. So it's about the Panera Bread security leak that had been going on for like 
several, several months. Uh-huh. This guy had let uh, this uh, info security director guy, uh, Mike Gus, Gus Division, know that, hey, you guys got this security issue. You know, I just, I want you guys to know about it because it's leaking private information. And this guy basically replied back saying, you know, how dare you try to extort me for money and stuff. And the reporter was, or the developer who was reporting the issue just said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just, I care about security and I want you to know that you had this issue. And so he eventually said, we'll look into it. And six months later, nothing ever got looked into. So recently, someone had written an article about it. And I guess you could say it's gone viral a bit because um, I started seeing it pop up many different places. And apparently, this guy used to be the info security person for Equifax as well. Back in oh, 2013. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's when I stopped feeling bad for this guy. Yeah. Because he has actually, you know, he doesn't care. It's a paycheck to him. He doesn't care about the job. He is just, you know, uh, making the same mistake over and over and over again and just ridiculing people who call him out on it. So, you know, that's when I started feeling sorry for him. But it, it is sad that, you know, uh, he's just, he's not willing to learn from his mistakes and to treat people with respect who are trying to share information that could save his job. Yeah, well, and it it's also interesting in that particular case, again, so you evaluate how do we make this not happen again? And it turns out, hey, this guy's a liability. And so that is yeah. the answer. But in a lot of other cases, you you also need to look at your systems and make sure that your systems are, are doing the right things so that even if you have somebody who's reckless, they you're you're containing the damage. And I think there's I think there's a bit of both that you have to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I agree, you know, if if it's been disclosed to you that you have an issue like that, it's it's the same thing with these exploits on operating systems and things like that. Um you know, there's there's kind of an industry method for doing this where you disclose to the company that they have this issue and then you you can go public with the exploit if they don't fix it after so many months. And the yeah. idea, again, is is then it gives them the opportunity to fix the problem before it affects thousands of people. Yeah. And if people kind of follow that process, there are people that just, oh, they find an exploit and they just publish it. And that, that, that causes some issues. Whereas again, you know, if we have this process and we follow the process, because ultimately we want to take care of these people, we want to take care of the people that work for us. We want to make sure that everybody's happy and that everybody feels secure in their job and that they can move forward. And if people are empowered to make mistakes, then they're also going to take risks that may pay off for the business. So you don't want to completely stifle that. And I think that's where this process comes in, where it's like, look, we're not going to look for blame. We're going to look for cause. Right. And then we're going to fix the cause. Well, then you have like the whole Intel meltdown vulnerability where, you know, I guess they did oh, go yeah. public with it before Intel fixed it because I guess Intel knew about it for the longest time and just never did anything about it. I'm like, yep. And that's, that that's, of, that's the kind of thing where I, I agree. It's, it's like, look, well, if you're not going to fix it, then I'm going to, I'm going to make it hurt for you to not fix it. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I was pretty much done. Uh, but it's sad to see that, you know, in the Panera's case, that 
they just really had no interest, not the company, but this guy had no interest in, you know, addressing the issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Then I found out he worked for Equifax. I'm like, you know what? Screw him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and Panera should have done their homework too, right? Yeah. And, and so I feel a little less bad for them. I mean, it, it stinks to have your business go through this, but if they had done their due diligence, would they have hired him? I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't have. I'm just saying, you know, it, it's, a, it's a legitimate question to ask. Yeah. So one other thing that uh, I also think about with um, automation are things, and, and this is something that we take for granted in Rails, and a lot of other systems are starting to pick up on this. I'm seeing this with the front-end frameworks now, are things like the Rails generators. Mm-hmm. where you can, and, and I don't see people do this as much in Rails. They just use the built-in generators instead of building their their own generators, which is funny how many people complain about the scaffold generator, and then they don't actually <laughs> go modify it. it to be whatever they want it to be. Yeah. I, I agree. The scaffold generator is appropriate when I just want a quick and easy rest setup. Yeah. But it was, uh, it's but a lot yeah. easier to go through and delete junk, you know, delete the scaffold SCSS that gets generated or, yeah. you know, put it in your config to not generate the CSSs. Yeah. But how, how many times do you wind up doing that? I mean, every time you generate a new scaffold, you have to go back and do it again and again and again and again. And so why not just go fix it once and for all? Yeah. And I'm really big on custom generators for anything where, I have created a repeatable feature. So whether it is something using like a data tables or some component within my application that will have a lot of things that need to be changed, but there is a core concept of an infrastructure within that component that is the same, I created Rails Generator. And I did a Drift Ruby episode on it some time back on custom generators. And I use it every day. As I'm yeah. developing new features on the application where it is just a add-on or another piece to that puzzle, I'll use a generator that generates all that relevant code so I don't have to think about it. I don't have to think about, you know, okay, now where do I go to add in the next bit? Yep. No. Yeah, exactly. You also get some of that in your IDE or text editor. There are a mm-hmm. lot of ways to do automation there. I mean, there's so many levels to this and... It just makes you faster. It makes you more efficient. And you get to the point, I mean, the part of writing code that I like is not the boilerplate crap, right? I don't really want to think about deployments. I don't really want to think about um, running the end-to-end tests. I just want the report that tells me, oh, you need to go and look at this. And so if I can build all these pieces in so that I can just focus on, I've got a tough problem. I'm going to puzzle it out. That's fun. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I look at automation as a way to get all that out of the way. But at the same time, as a business person, I also look at it and say, I can, it is predictable. I know, I know what I'm getting here and here and here and here. Yeah. And around the deployments, if you find that you're having that, the only way you can deploy your application is to SSH into the server, pull down the code, and then run migrations and restart your service, then something's wrong with your deployment steps. Because those kind of things are pretty consistent and they should be automated to some degree. Even yep. if you have just an Ansible script that lives on your computer, but just something that will go out and do those steps for you, just so you're not forgetting a step. So you are being consistent in how those are being executed. 
you know, it's really important. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And what's really funny is you, you said, well, if your method is log into the machine uh, or SSH into the machine, um, do a git pull to pull it down, run the migrations, you know, do any build steps for your JavaScript and get out. That's what Capistrano does. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a hundred percent what Capistrano does. And so there are systems out there that will do that for you. And then you know, oh, I, oh, I forgot a step. I forgot to migrate. Now I'm getting errors on my server. No, don't 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 mess with that stuff. Yeah. And the thing is, is it's not it's not necessarily well something's wrong with you. It's you're you're doing something that is easily repeatable and handled by code. And so mm -hmm. why, I mean, why go to all the effort to do it every single time? And in the book, there's a book I read called Procrastinate on Purpose. And he talks about how um, a lot of people, business owners in this case, they, they get in and it's like, well, it's just easier for me to do this. It only takes me five minutes to do it. But it's something that they do every day, right? And yeah. it would take them an extra 10 minutes to turn on some recording software and show somebody else how to do it and then help them out a couple of times so that they can do it consistently. Well, so you're into it 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but after a week, that time's free. You got that five minutes back every day for free forever. Yeah. And so, you know, it, you just need to think about this and realize if you automate it away, and it's something you do on a routine basis, you're going to reclaim that time after the first couple of times for free. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I really like uh, AWS Beanstalk is because it does take care of a lot of the infrastructure for you, so you don't have to think about yeah. it. You can spin up. Uh, all the servers are basically, um, they have no meaning that, meaning that they're not built so specific that if that server were to die, you would have to rebuild it from scratch. You know, everything is repeatable. So if I need to spin up five new servers, I just tell it, you know, have a minimum of five or seven or whatever, and it'll spin up those servers off my deployment scripts to where I don't even have to think about it. You know, I don't have to remember the exact steps that I took to get to the end result, as well as being able to retire servers. You know, I usually refresh my servers every uh, few weeks. You know, I just tell it to uh, destroy the instance, it'll delete it, and then it'll recreate it, a new one. So there's zero downtime. Just that one server goes down, you know, it does it in a waterfall style. Mm -hmm. And then if there's a problem with it coming back up, I know about it when it's not a deployment night. So I'm not having to do a deployment. And then I find, oh crap, the server's not coming back up. Was it my new code or was it something else? So that way, because um, I've had situations where my deployment scripts were dependent on a third-party library or something that was hosted elsewhere and that source is dead. Now my deployment scripts won't work. It's much better to know about that when you're not trying to do an actual code deployment. Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent. Was there anything else that you think we ought to talk about on this particular topic? Well, there's a lot of stuff we should probably talk about, but yeah, I don't know if we have time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we have time either, but uh, yeah, we've, we've been talking for about an hour. So anyway, hopefully this has been some food for thought. I mean, there are a lot of different areas that this occurs in, but 
I mean, the, the more that you can get things out of your way so that people aren't trying to figure out what to do or how to do it, and the more that you can move pe- things off people's plates so that they can get more done for you, the better off you are. And yeah. I, I keep telling people, you know, your next hire honestly should be a process. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you can come back because the other thing is, is if you set up all these processes and then you have a process for onboarding somebody, you know, where you acquaint them with all the rest of this stuff, you have a process for setting up their new machine. You have a process for getting them into the system and onto your Slack and all of the other things that that go into it, that all runs smoothly. They get in, they know exactly how to plug into your team and then you can just move ahead. And so when you do need to hire people, instead of taking two, three, four months for them to figure out how to ramp up. It'll take them a couple of weeks and then they can get in, they can start figuring out the code and they can move forward from there. Yeah. And one thing that um, I guess my final food for thought is having a full coverage test does not replace having a QA person and having a fully automated uh, deployment CICD scripts does not replace having the need for a network, IT, DevOps, whatever you want to call them, person. I I agree. Um, mainly because I see that the two, um, they, they, they approach different problems in different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you can't, I, again, I, I understand that some people work for small startups where it's, hey, look, you know what? We don't, I don't know that we have budget to hire an, uh, a QA person. That's fine. You know what? Do, do the best you can. But in the meantime, you know, make sure that you're getting that other end of things covered with the test coverage and things like that so that you can move forward quickly and confidently. Yep. All righty. Should we do some picks? Yeah. You want to go first? You want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. All right. So think about pick real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Hey, when it comes to health, you probably have some of the same disqualifications that I do. You sit all day. You run a busy life, and when you do make it to the gym, the only thing you're really qualified to do is turn the treadmill on. I was an athlete in high school, and so I could have thrown swimming in the mix, but that was about it. And I didn't really know what to do when I decided that I needed to get my health under control, especially since I have type 2 diabetes and I want to be around for my kids. So I contacted my friend JC over at DevLifts, and DevLifts, they did me a huge, huge, huge favor. Sure, it's a paid service, but what they did is they gave me a workout program, They also gave me some eating guidelines and they have a Slack room where I can go and I can ask questions and they give weekly challenges on things that I need to do differently. I really, really love it. So if you're looking for a way to get into shape, you're looking for a way to improve your health, then go check them out at devlifts.io. That's D-E-V-L-I-F-T-S dot I-O. So uh, one pick, I did mention the book Procrastinate on Purpose. Really, really digging that. Um, So I'm going to pick that. I guess I'll just talk briefly about one other thing that I've got in the works. Um, So I am working on at this point, pulling together some, it's basically some other shows. And these are shows that I had looked at starting a while back. I actually got artwork done for them and I never launched them. Um, But I was recently talking to somebody about uh, the Amazon Alexa flash briefings and my echo just lit up over here. (laughs) But um, anyway, the flash briefings are essentially kind of a news uh, roundup that you can have your echo play for you and uh, you can add your own briefings to it. And so this brought me back to this idea because they were basically 
uh, five minute or less videos talking about something really briefly related to Ruby or JavaScript or Angular or React or something like that. And um, realizing that, you know what, these are going to go into a lot of different places um, really kind of made me excited. So I'm pretty sure that I'm actually going to record them as YouTube videos and then um, release them on an RSS feed and on the flash briefing. So by the time this goes out, which should be two weeks from when we recorded this, um, I'll be at ng-conf, so if you email me about it, I won't be able to answer right away, but um, you should be able to start getting or at least subscribe to the flash briefings about Ruby or JavaScript or Angular, and I'm probably going to do them on React because I'm seriously considering putting together a video series on React. So... um, Anyway, all of that said, um, it's just kind of a cool tool that's out there. And I'm just going to cover, I'll probably have one episode where I talk about, hey, this is what we talked about on Ruby Rogues this week. And then um, most of the rest of the episodes are going to be things that I find on the internet or topics that come to mind that I just want to talk about. And I'm going to try and get a pretty good mix of technical, um, maybe one career or, you know, sort of... um, not technical aspect of things focused every week, but we'll see how that works out. Um, but yeah, if you want to get those, um, you know, just jump in and do it. And yeah, I think, I think I'm probably going to wind up recording a bunch of them all at once. Um, but they should, I'm going to really try hard to keep them relevant to what we're talking about on the show and in general in the Ruby community. So if you have a question about Ruby that you want me to answer in five minutes or less, just send me an email. Chuck at devchat.tv and uh, we'll get that answered. And then once the uh, show actually goes live, then you'll be able to submit a talk it on uh, a topic on user user voice, which is the forum system that I'm using to get topics. Incidentally, for Ruby Rogues, um, I did set up a suggest a topic uh, forum for Ruby Rogues. So if you go to rubyrogues.com, you can just click on that suggest a topic and uh, it'll it'll take you to the place where you can uh, suggest those. If you don't have any ideas, you can also go upvote them. So uh, all of that said, you know, go check all of that out. Dave, what are your picks? All right. So I have two picks. One is having a good soldering iron. If you do any kind of electrical work and stuff, having having a good soldering iron, which I do not have. So this is why I'm picking it because I need to get one. Uh, but having a good one, one that has LEDs so you're lighting up what you're working on. So last night at midnight, I was in my car. I was splicing some wires and soldering them on because I don't believe in just crimping. Uh, but having a good soldering iron would have made the job a lot easier. One with a precision tip and yeah. So um, that's definitely a must. And you know, I might as well throw some uh, heat shrink tubing in a air gun, a heat gun. Uh, on there as well, because those are just a lot of fun. It's basically just on your bare connection, you have this little rubber tubing that acts as your electrical tape. You just put it over your connection after you're done soldering it or whatever. Just get the hot air dryer, blow it on, and it just shrinks down and really tightens the uh, the connection. So uh, they're really awesome. And my second pick is a exercise trampoline. So it's basically just a small four foot wide trampoline that has a handlebar they can hold on to. And it is great for wearing out your kids. So (laughs) nice. (laughs) So my kids, it'll hold like 250, 300 pounds. So I can't really jump on there, but um, 
My kids love it. All three of them will be on there just jumping all together, bumping heads and stuff. They love it. That's funny. My wife bought one of those and my two-year-old's always asking to jump on it. Yep. We put ours in the family room. So that's where we are most of the time when we're awake and they're always just hopping on it, which I fully support because it wears them out. Yep. Uh, As far as soldering irons go, there's a battery powered one that I bought at Walmart a while back and it has the light on it and everything else that you're talking about. It has a precision tip. You can switch the tips out. It comes with like two tips. And uh, it's, it's, it's been really good. I was, I was surprised to get a good one at Walmart. Yeah. Cause usually Walmart, it's really iffy about like the quality of their stuff. But cause I've seen some of their needle nose pliers and stuff that are just real junk. Like you squeeze them together and the tips don't align. So, um, but if you say it's good, I'll check it out. Yep. I'll, I'll see if I can figure out what brand it was, but cool. All righty. Well, I think I think that's a wrap. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up, folks, and we will catch you all next week. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.